0: We're going to talk about two things, two general categories tonight. First, we're going to talk about uh, the character of sin. And then we're going to go on and talk about the end of God's government for man. What, how, uh, the, some of the structure of God's government over man in, in moral government and uh, um, some of his, um, some of the ways that, you know, the government relates to law, relates to consequences, relates to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll, at the end, we'll put some problems that God had in forgiving man, because we'll talk about sin, of course, but problems that God had in forgiving man, what they aren't and what they are, and then when we talk about the atonement, maybe tomorrow or whatever, we'll discuss the answer to those problems. The first night, we want to talk about the character of sin. We've been discussing all all the time that I've been uh, teaching here. We've, the constant thing I've been bringing out is that the division between metaphysics and morals in our philosophy. And we have to keep that separate in our understanding of metaphysics and morals and it's again when we start talking about the character of sin we have to discuss as well the difference between metaphysics and morals because this confusion comes up in the church and uh, since the time of augustine we've had our metaphysics and morals squashed together in this area and we want to talk about that we want to talk about that kind of that kind of confusion that has developed in the church and Different doctrines that have have come in and so forth. Um. Yeah. First, we're going to talk about, and talking about what sin is. The best way to define something sometimes is what sin is not. So we're going to talk about what sin is not. Okay. First thing we're going to do is define it negatively. Sin is not. Sin is not. Number one. Sin is not a thing. How's that for coming on metaphysics and morals right away? Um, Sin is not a thing. Sin is not a vapor or a fog or something like that floating around in in the air or waiting around the next corner to jump on you or diffused through space or something like that. Sin is not a thing. Paul the Apostle said, I am convinced of the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Um... That's Romans 14, uh, verse 14. I know and I'm convincing the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. 14, 14, yes. Perfect square there. 14, 14. There is nothing that is unclean in itself. Now, when we think about things, um, we have to consider some things, okay? So let's consider some things. How about um, money? Is money right or wrong? Neither. <laughs> Either or neither, yes. Uh, depends on how you're looking at it. It can be used in two different fashions, but it in itself is not right or wrong. It is all moral. Things don't have any morality. Things are all moral. Okay. How about uh, how about a baseball bat? No, <laughs> well, for you it's a football. <laughs> it causes sore shoulders and no. <laughs> so. um, how about food? Well, oh, it's not right or wrong. Okay, depends on what you choose to do with that, I and mean, that still that still doesn't make the potatoes good or bad. If you eat too many of them, that doesn't make the potatoes bad. Your choice may have been bad, but your potatoes aren't bad. Okay, um, and you can take it on to all kinds of you know, all kinds of things. We were talking about that a little bit. Um, when was that? Yesterday morning. We were talking about that a little bit, and you can take it into uh, your physical body. Is your physical body good, bad, or indifferent? And I talk about whether you're good, bad, or indifferent, your physical body. Is it good or bad? Well, Lippy said it was good. The question is what does he mean by that? Does he mean good as opposed to evil? No, it's good <laughs> 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 that's 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 you, book, yes. That's, The question is what, what that means by good, uh, uh, what, what he means by good there. And uh, as Francis Schaeffer says, he wasn't making a relative value uh, judgment. Um, God could make an absolute value judgment at that point. I don't think he meant good in, in, in respect to good or evil because he couldn't speak of things, especially if Paul says that I'm convinced of the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean in itself. Okay, So just, things don't have any particular morality. We always speak of choices that have a particular kind of morality. Um, if you're reading Watchman Me nee, um, in the book, uh, no, well that one I don't, I don't, don't read that one, um, <laughs> Love Not the World, Love Not the World, It's got 12 chapters that say that things in the world are, not, are neither good nor evil and they can be used for either kingdom, just depends on the choices that you make, you can take them out of the kingdom of the enemy and use them for God. Um so forth and it goes through twelve chapters doing that and the whole direction of the book goes this way and chapter thirteen goes like this and it says money is evil in itself isn't that weird I don't think um, a lot of the stuff you know that, that's supposedly Watchman Nee now a lot of it probably isn't probably a lot of it is um, not Watchman Nee at all just uh, people writing things saying that it's Watchman Nee because it's got a good name and uh, the places where we get the information for Watchman Nee are loose enough that uh, all kinds of stuff could be fed into it and we wouldn't know if it was right or whether it was Watchman Nee's stuff or not. But it seems strange that the whole direction of the book is saying that um, things are not either good or bad and at the end he says money is evil in itself. Sounds like that may have been added on there by somebody else if the other stuff really was from Watchman Nee. The earlier stuff you have by Watchman Nee you can sense is a there's a real... Um, uh, there's a, there's, uh, it's solid. I mean, you can, you can sense that he's got a real understanding of the word. And some of the stuff gets, it gets foggier and foggier. The later stuff, it gets weirder and weirder. And I don't think it's because Watchman Nee was getting weirder. I think it's just because more people were reading things into his notes that weren't there, or they were adding material to it. So um, anyway, yes, yes, things. We were talking about sin is not a thing. So we have to keep our metaphysics and our morals separate here. And Some people will have trouble sometimes saying with things like this. Um, uh, I think we've looked at this before. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And it sounds like he's saying that the physical body is bad. But if we look at verse 14, this is chapter 7 of Romans, if we look at verse 14, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, that I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So when he says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing, you okay? see, He makes a distinction between in me, or he tries to define what he means by in me, and he says, in my flesh, which in verse 14 is associated with bondage to sin. And so, in his bondage to sin, or in his uh, body of selfish habits, or whatever you want to call it, I think that's what he means by body of sin in Romans 6. Um, But whatever you'd call that, in your selfish habit patterns, or your past life, or your former manner of living, or whatever, saying there's nothing good in that. It has to do with bondage, anything that has to do with the old habit patterns of the old life, there's nothing good in that at all. Okay? Because I don't think he's talking about his physical body. And uh, I think Carol touched on that too, didn't she, in her lecture on um, dualism, yeah, with the w- use of the word flesh. But anyway, sin is not a thing. So you get something else that sin is not. Sin is not a sin. Sin is not a mistake. When you sin, it it does not involve... See, a mistake means that... How can I put it? mistake means that there was either some kind of knowledge that you lacked and thus you did something that uh, resulted in something bad or something that should not have happened, Um, or that there was some kind of of limitation in you as a finite being that caused you to do such. Um, Say you're walking through the... um, You've got this big tray of dishes, right? At the farm, we carry things around in trays. It's this big tray of dishes, and you're walking along, and you don't see the door jam, right? And you trip over that, and you, all the dishes go. You know, we have to pay for dishes that we break. And so, dishes are all over the floor, and they're all broken. <coughs> you see, when the bottom falls out of the falls out of the tray. No, you, you you trip over this over this door jam, and everything goes on the floor, right? So then, that would be a mistake. That would be because of the limitations of your finite being and not recognizing that it was there, you see, so that you would step over that, which you may, had you been a different kind of being, recognize that it was there. Who knows whether you would have or not. Um, we we'll leave that up to question. question. Um, but a mistake in implies that there was some kind of a limitation or some kind of a lack of knowledge that you had, and thus you did something that may have been detrimental more or less. I mean, if you drop, if you're on a, Strict budget at the farm, and you don't have much money, and you drop a lot of <laughs> drop a lot of dishes. It's detrimental. Be uh, in debt, practically forever. Some people, but uh, so that when you're when you make a mistake, it implies some kind of a lack of knowledge or some kind of limitation in you as a finite being. So, as a finite being, you can make a mistake, but because you make a mistake, does not mean that you have sinned. Because sin is not um, having limitations. It's not a a sin to have a limitation as a finite being. And a sin is not a lack of knowledge. It's not a sin to have a lack of knowledge. And if out of a lack of knowledge, a person makes a mistake that is not sin. It's not sin. Remember now, we're only talking about what sin is not. It's not a mistake. It's not a lack of knowledge. If you're ignorant of something, it is not sin for you to be ignorant. If you have put yourself in a place where you're ignorant by your choice, because you've cho- you've chosen to refuse to find out what you should have found out, then that was sin. Okay. I think it was Charles Finney that pointed out that you can never be held. God can never hold you responsible for what you do not know, even if the reason that you do not know it is your fault. He can hold you responsible for the fact that you did not find out, and that was sin, and that was a choice, but he can't hold you responsible for material that you don't know, even if it was your irresponsibility, in that you did not find out. You get the difference between the two? You make the choice not to find out. He can hold you responsible for that. Because you knew that you should have done so. But the material the material that you're lacking, he you still can't hold you responsible for that. Even though it's your fault that you don't know that. Okay. Um, yeah, he has some interesting points on that. He said, No no saint uh and and he said he didn't feel any angel either. Good, bad, anything, saint, uh sinner, anything would ever be able to uh uh, meet the qualifications that God says we are to have that is to live without sin before him if that were true because at any point where we sin um, then see how's he put it at any point where we sin we are immediately then going to be lacking something that we could have had had we not continued in sin do you understand we recognize that on the broad scale with look where the human race would have been now if we hadn't sinned okay and we're, we're, we're lacking quite a bit because we the human race generally has gone into sin. Well, in your own own life, if you sin from the time that you that you're disobedient to the Lord until you get that straightened out, you're missing something in between there. You see, God could have been directing you to do something, giving you information that that in between that time he, he wasn't just he wasn't free justly to do that for you. And so, if it depended upon what you missed, then once you sin once, you'd never be able to fulfill the law of God again, ever. See? And yet God doesn't view do it that way. He commands us to do it. Ta-da! He gave the laws in the wilderness to people that were grumbling, murmuring, complaining Israelites, See? and said, it's not too hard for you. You can do it. Yes. Anyway, um, yes, I think we'll go on. So, sin is not a thing. It isn't a mistake. It's not a lack of knowledge, because you're not responsible for what you don't know. And it's also not a disease. You can't pick up sin like you do the measles from someone else. You see, it doesn't rub off like that. Someone else may be an influence on you, but you can't pick up a little bit of sin, you know, when you rub up against somebody else. Because somebody else is in rebellion, and you're around them doesn't mean that you're going to uh, go into rebellion. You can't pick up sin like that. It's not a disease. It doesn't rub off. That, of course, is directly related to the idea that it is not a thing. <laughs> So um, sin is not a thing. Sin is not a mistake. It's not a lack of knowledge. Under that, by the way, the um, as we've discussed before, the Gentiles will those people who have not heard the law, the ethnic, will not um, will not be judged according to what they do not know, but will be judged according to what they do know. Right? They'll be judged according to what they do know. And if they have never heard of Jesus, they will not be judged in accordance with that. Let me read something to you. I most certainly understand now this is Peter the Apostle speaking. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man oh this is a Jew that's saying this in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Or is accepted by him. In every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's Acts 10, 34 and 35. And in... Somebody help me with this. When Caiaphas... He and it says this he was prophesying, that one would die for the sins of the people. Where is that? Oh, okay, here we go, I think I got it. Aha, yes. John 11, 49 through 52. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people. And that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might, uh, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Hmm. My wife has a list of about seven places in the New Testament that say that um, that there are some Gentiles who are saved. Apart from the knowledge of Jesus, so I'll have to get the list from her sometime. But that's one of her one of her studies that she wanted to find out: Does the Bible really support the idea that Gentiles will be judged according to the knowledge that they have, and not according to whether or not they've heard the preaching of the gospel? Okay. Now we recognize they receive a lot of light from creation, and if they don't live up to that, that they're condemned, according to Romans one and um, according to Romans. Uh, you just listen to the tapes and exegesis on it. What chapter in Romans ten it says? Have they he- have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their line has gone out through all the world. All the world there. West the end of the way, age, world or something. Okay. Anyway, it's the creation. Uh, yes, um, it's not a disease. You can't pick it up from somebody else like you do the measles, like you do your presuppositions. You know, as Francis Schaeffer says. Okay. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for another um, another word here. <laughs> That's right. It's not a temptation. You got the list there? <laughs> sin is not a temptation. But if there's a difference between being tempted and sinning, to be tempted is to have the sin presented to you and to... Sin is to be involved in the sin itself. It's to make the choice to be involved. It's to make the choice to do it. So you can have, um, let's say you've, in your background you've been a thief. Um, you were a thief, past tense. And so that now that you've, you're presented with some money that's in front of you that you could steal, and you've had habits of doing that before, now you, when you were presented with that, that's a temptation. But if you choose to, to take that, then you've sinned. Okay. Now, covetousness is another thing um, that you have to deal with at that point. Um, Gordon defines it as a dissatisfied state of mind. And uh, (laughs) when I heard that, I thought, "Mm, I've been covetous a lot more times than I think then. (laughs) A dissatisfied state of mind. That is, not being satisfied with how you are, what state you're in right now. And that is like, I don't like the circumstances around me, I don't like the food, I don't like the... The place I'm sleeping, I don't like my roommates, I don't like my, you see, a dissatisfied state of mind, because what you're doing is you're coveting another circumstance, other, other food, other, uh, other friends, other, you know, other sleeping quarters, other, whatever, other monetary, financial situations. <laughs> yeah, the, the word covet is not always bad. No, we're, we're commanded to covet and seek after spiritual gifts, so forth. Now, it's like the word lust is not, is, is neutral. It's used to represent something which is bad in the scripture, but it's not always used to represent something that is bad, because the word lust in the Greek is used for Jesus as well. It says that Jesus lusted. He said with, uh, it's translated this way, with great desire I have desired to, to, uh, to have this last supper with you. And the word is lust twice. With great lust, I have lusted to have this, to keep this, t- this time with you. So that lust means only desire, it doesn't mean necessarily an evil desire. Since it's used of Jesus as well. Okay? And then, um, lastly, which probably be the major thing here, is that sin is not. Sin is not the way you were born. Um, this bit relates very much to the idea of a thing. Sin is not a thing. Sin is not something that's lodged somewhere in your personality. Um, it's not something that's lodged somewhere in your body, like um, just over your right hip phone or something. Um, and yet this idea, since the time of Augustine, has been very prevalent, and there were only a few people that held the idea seriously before the time of Augustine. And most of the early church fathers rejected the idea entirely uh, that, and of fact like some of them became very vehement about the whole thing, uh, saying that this was a very strange idea, to say that man was born with what we commonly call a sinful nature. Now, we have to be careful with our terms, because I met a guy one time that said, only I believe man has a sinful nature, and I said, what does that mean to you? And he said, oh, I believe man's born into an environment that's corrupted. Well, that's not that's not the way most people define having a sinful nature, and I found out that you know you have to be careful you have to be careful with your terms because this you know sinful nature sub one is not sinful nature sub two is not sinful nature sub three. What you know, whatever in the world does the person mean by sinful nature? But the way that it's commonly taken, like in the Westminster Confession and so forth, um, by uh, basically the, the Calvinistic circles, is the idea that man is born in such a way that he either has a tendency towards doing that which is evil, or he actually has um, something in him that causes him, some kind of a, what they call a nature. I don't know what they mean by that exactly. I don't know if they have it really pinned down, but um, some kind of a nature inside of you that drives you towards sin so that you will sin. So that it, And in some cases, and in some extreme cases, they go to the point by of saying that it is of such a nature in you that you cannot do that which is good. In some places actually said, so Calvin said that the human being cannot even aspire to do good. Can you imagine that? Can't even aspire to it. Can't even think of it. Can't anything. You that, that can't even happen with a human being. Um, I, I, I think maybe Calvin had a bit of troubles with Platonic dualism as well because he said... Uh, See, how's this quote go? Uh, Jesus said that the problem with man is that he is flesh, meaning that he is physical, you see? And so he maybe had troubles with a little bit of platonic dualism there, too, thinking that Jesus was saying that 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 which is physical is evil. And Augustine did agree with the idea that, that physical things could be evil in themselves. And so he put together... Uh, the idea that squashed his metaphysics and his morals together in the idea that man was sinful not by what he uh, did not by his choices but he was actually sinful as far as his actual essence and being was concerned as well. Um, Carol shared with you some of his views on sex and so forth you know that um, sex is evil and uh, it's unseemly it's a hindrance to the holy life and things like that. Well Yes. Well, so much for his ideas. You can see how Augustine... Some of you who know about Augustine's background and the life he came out of, he was very promiscuous and uh, tried to hold on and adopt philosophies that would allow him uh, to see how he could be promiscuous and it, and it would, uh, wouldn't matter, like if he was in uh, what's called Manichaeism or Manichaeanism, and that divides between the spirit and the, and the flesh, and it doesn't matter what the flesh is doing because it's evil anyway. But the, the spirit can be, can be right and can be good, and yet the flesh can be evil, and there's such a separation between the two that you can basically do whatever you want in your body and it isn't going to make any difference as to your um, spiritual condition. Okay. So um, he, with some of these ideas, I can see where he might get those and take those and carry them over because of his promiscuous background into his Christian life and therefore feel um, that, that man somehow intrinsically in his body was wrong, because his sin was greatly physical before, especially sexual, before he became a Christian. And that could have greatly influenced his thinking in that way. Um, but you get both extremes of the, uh, of the spectrum, and we'll take a look at the different ideas, but he squashed his metaphysics and his morals together, and interestingly enough, argued backwards from the idea of man's, of man, the church baptizes infants, he argued back you backwards from that can't even get it out. He argued backwards from that to the idea that man therefore must be guilty as he's born. Rather than arguing the other direction. You see, it makes sense to go the other way. To say, well, the Bible says that man is born with a sinful nature, therefore he would have to be baptized as a child. You see? It makes sense to go that direction, but what he did was started with the church baptizes infants. He started with what the church was doing and then worked backwards, logically, to the idea that, therefore, parents uh, I mean, the children must be guilty. And if children are not guilty for their own sin, they must be guilty for someone else's sin. And following it all the way back, then it would have to be that these, they're guilty for Adam's sin. And then, um, uh, logically, of course, he had to think about what would happen if two Christians have a child, and the two Christians have been forgiven and cleansed. What happened then? Well, then he said that people can communicate something to someone else which they themselves do not possess. Now, how I can oh, that little bit of logic, I don't think I'll ever know. But that's what he said. People can communicate to someone else something that they do not themselves possess. Meaning parents can give their children sinful natures even though they don't have them anymore as parents. Which is rather interesting. Exactly what he meant by sinful nature, I, I think we'll probably never know unless we ask him. I hope he's in heaven. Yes. It would, because if if the sinful nature, commonly the idea of sinful nature is that that's something you're born with. It's something basically that you are. Sin is something that you are rather than you choose. You're guilty simply because you are a human being. You see? And if this, this kind of nature is in you and it's been passed on to you from your parents, well, how would that be passed on to you, except metaphysically? It's not it's not morally, because in birth, in the process of conception and birth, there's no, there's nothing moral in you that's taking place as a child. See? Nothing sinful about being born. Nothing sinful about being a human being. See? like Martin Luther said, Jesus had a body and he was he was without sin. The devil doesn't have a body that we know of, and he's sinful. You see, so it's not, it's not, doesn't reside in whether or not you have a physical body. Okay. So um, yes, what were we going to, oh yes, extreme. Guru, join a little graph here. Augustine? E. Thought oh, it looked a little bit empty. <laughs> okay, and then you've got Augustine saying that man is a, a big negative. Okay? And over here you've got somebody that was saying that man was a big positive and he was, uh, they had a lot of discussions. This guy, the other guy, this other guy was a British, uh, monk. I didn't realize they even had British monks in the middle of the fourth century. By that time they already, uh, Christianity was advanced in England to the place where they had British monks. Imagine that. There was this guy named Pelagius. He was a British monk. Okay. And uh, he was very much hounded by Augustine, because uh, Augustine was teaching at the time, which, who knows what his motives were, but it appears that those motives were bad, and it looks that way. But he was teaching at the time that man could be forced to be saved, that man, he's talking about the, the predestination, predeterminism, and that kind of thing, irresistible grace, that man could be forced to be saved, and if God forces men to be saved, then it's okay for us, as God's um, agents, to force men. To do things like um, force them to repent, or force them, if they're not going to uh, repent, we'll we'll just uh, kill them. Things like this, or use pressure against them in that way—physical violence or torture, or things like that. And I don't know what to what extent that was developed in Augustine's mind. But one of the things that he wa- really wanted to do, there was a group called the Donatists, um, and he really wanted to be able to persecute them. But he didn't have anything in his earlier Christian, earlier Christian life. Now he recognized it in his earlier Christian life. Maybe you don't recognize it. In his earlier Christian life, he agreed with the idea of free will, and then later changed. He didn't always hold to the idea of predestination. He changed his idea. His, the first, the first, first part of his Christian life was um, he agreed with the idea of free will. Man was free to choose and so forth. Then later he came to the conclusion that he felt that man did not have um, the freedom to choose. And the question is why he would develop that kind of thing, especially about the same time that he wanted to um, to have the church come against the Donatists and uh, eradicate them. And uh, so we have to ask the question as to whether or not it might be involved in that, because you with a doctrine of free will, you can't you can't go around trying to force people to be saved, to submit to the church, or or uh, or get killed. Okay? But you can if you have the doctrine of uh, irresistible grace and uh, predestination, etc., so I don't know if that was his motive or not, but it, it just looked like that, and some people have felt that perhaps that was his motive in doing it. But um, you have the Pelagius, as Augustine saw Pelagius. Um, I'm not particularly sure that it's right, but as Augustine understood Pelagius, Pelagius seemed to be saying that man was was born and was living completely positively, and that the the whole tendency in man was positive and it was um, it was towards goodness. Okay. And, of course, Augustine, looking at the world, or anybody looking at the world, uh, it appears as if man's tendencies are not exactly towards goodness, right? Okay. Nobody um, looking around in here now, because you're with a bunch of Christians, you look out into the world, right, as to what's going on in the world today. And uh, you look at that, and you don't exactly get the idea that man is just a whole big bundle of goodness. And uh, I'm sure Augustine didn't get the idea then either, because the problem of sin was still there. And so he thought that basically Pelagius, although I haven't ever read this in Pelagius, because Pelagius always seemed very balanced, What I've read of him, although it isn't a whole lot. Um, hard to get a hold of stuff like Pelagius. Um, Arminius, man, if you want to read stuff by Arminius, you can volume. Uh, but Pelagius seemed to be saying to Augustine that man could do it by himself, that man could save himself, that man could make all the right choices by himself. Um, and so Augustine seemed to get the idea that Pelagius was saying that man could save himself. And uh, that is what's commonly understood from the uh, Calvinistic side as to what Pele- the word Pelagian means. This is a Pelagian idea. That's also the same meaning for um Arminian. They put Arminian and Pelagian together. And if you're you know, if you're Pelagius, you're Pelagian, you're Arminian, if you're Arminian, you're Pelagian, it's making a difference. That's the idea they think, that the Arminian believes that man can save himself by his good works. Now I b- uh, believe that I'm in the class of Armenian, if you want to uh, compare that with um, with Calvinism. But that does, I don't agree with the idea that man can save himself by his good works. Never did. <laughs> well, I don't know, but um, anyway, that's what they seem to be confronting, and I I agree. I, I don't agree with the idea at all. I mean, I agree with them, but I don't agree with the idea at all that man can save himself by his good works. And uh, I agree that there's a problem with sin in the world. But you know, the traditional the traditional Jewish idea is that man is neutral and that every man goes through his own Garden of Eden experience. The basic basic Jewish idea that children are born neutral. They didn't have the idea of um, that came in later um, after uh, after the... What was it? I'm trying to remember what part of the... Tom was it in? It, well, it came in later though, It did, was originally the idea was not that man was born with, um, with a, a sinful nature, it was born in this direction, negatively, but it has been adopted in some circles, some Jewish uh, circles, and it was adopted, oh, I forget when it was, 200, 300 A.D., something like that, that it was accepted, that kind of an idea, but originally they had the idea that man goes through his own kind of garden of Eden and it's, he's basically a neutral being. Now I agree with that idea. Somewhat. I believe that man is neutral when he's born as far as his moral standing is concerned. But I don't, but there's many ways in which when a man is born he is not neutral. Okay? He's got a physically depraved body. He's born into a situation where he's going to have the bad example of people. He's going to be under attack from the, from the physical world because it is now um, set against us. Uh, it used to be completely conducive to us, but it's not anymore. And so the whole environment into which man is born is set at um, moving him in the wrong direction. And so the poor little baby that comes into the world doesn't know this yet, but everything basically is against the kid. See, And that even with Christian parents, the child is still going to experience times when the child sees the parents be selfish, express wrong attitudes, etc. And so even with Christian parents, because God is still working on them, the child is still going to learn bad things from their parents. Um, I was in Floyd's apartment one time, I don't think you'll mind my uh, saying this, in Floyd's apartment one time and his daughter threw a wild temper tantrum. And they, you know, they were used to this, so they they just sort of sat there calmly while she was throwing a temper tantrum. We were talking and they weren't going to let this, um, they weren't going to let this disturb our conversation, you see. And um, he looked at me very calmly said, you know, he said, that could... That could almost make me believe in a sinful nature, you know, that children are born with a sinful nature. He says, but the really disturbing thing about it is, she—I think she learned that from me. <laughs> so, uh, have to be willing to accept the responsibility of uh, teaching teaching kids wrong things. That's. Anyway, like I was saying, it's not the way you were born. And there's the there's the extreme on one end of saying that man is all bad. There's the extreme on the other end of saying that man is all good. And then um, where I, I stand, which is just another idea. And if you're going to have an idea, of course you're going to have to go to the scripture and see if it's if it's there or not, or actually go to the scripture and find out what it actually says. And maybe we can look at a few of the scriptures that have to deal with this subject, you know, or against. But um, uh, the, the place I stand, so I let you know where I am, is that man is man is neutral in the sense of his moral standing, but he's not neutral in the sense of his environment. And uh, it seems like everything is calculated against the, against the person coming into the world. And um, I think it was Charles Finney who said um, that to try to prove something, to prove to if you prove something too far, if you prove too much, it doesn't do any good for your argument. You should only go as far as you need to prove something. And this is the question that he's dealing with. To explain the universality of sin in the human race, do you have to postulate a sinful nature? You see? Or, can you explain the universality of the human race in something short of a sinful nature? Now, he believed that it was just from the scripture that man didn't have a sinful nature? But he was, in in talking about it in philosophy, he discussed it in this fashion. If you go too far and say, if he felt it was going too far to say that in order to have all men sin, to say that all men have sinned, uh, that you you have to say that all men had to sin because they had sinful natures. He said, is it not possible to say that because the environment was so against the person and so conducive to sin and the temptation so strong because of the environment, that you could, through that, explain the universality of sin in the human race. I don't know. I don't know if Enoch did or not. Didn't die. Um, that may be one possibility, you see, Enoch. Um, I don't know. See, there's, there's, it gets pretty complicated there because it, it gets into um, things like your ultimate intention, your subordinate, your routine choices, and so forth. I believe that there will be people who have not heard the gospel that will be saved, you see. Because that, uh, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they have never sinned in the idea of committing an actual act of sin, such as stealing or lying or, or, you know, on a subordinate routine or routine level. Because even we as Christians, after we've become Christians, have sinned. That does not mean that we're lost. You see, so there's a difference between saying if a person will have lived completely without sin, or if a person will be saved. See, so there's a difference. And, uh, concern, one concerning ultimate intention, the other one concerning the actual, uh, individual acts of sin. I believe personally, uh, you can just take this for what it's worth, I believe personally that there are some people who are never lost. I don't, I, I, I would think from Billy, Billy Graham's wife's testimony that she was never lost. You know, you hear about people that, that from the time that they can remember, they've been serving the Lord, and that's all they've ever done. Raised in a Christian home, and the first decision that they made, uh, towards the Lord was to love him because of the example of their parents and so forth and it, it, they never remember repenting from, any, from sin individual sins but never a selfish intention in life you see hmm? before they realized it you know, before they realized it was sin like a child he says it's wrong," the child says you your, your children will enter the land because they have not learned to the son couldn't eat yeah. Well, yeah, it sort of blows my mind too because it was everybody that was under twenty years of age that he was talking about. <laughs> anyway. Well <laughs> yeah. that's that's his problem. Yeah. yeah. I just that's just one of the scriptures that means that me the when a child was born, he's born and yeah, it's hard to be joking to showing my kids and that was four of war and he was born to you, but the question is whether it's a place to choose on a subordinate or routine level, or if it's if it's to choose on, on an ultimate intention of life, the whole overall general pattern of the child's life. I can't see how we see as your as your knowledge grows, your responsibility grows, and as you know, when the, some of the first things that a child learns is things like uh, you're to lie down in bed, you know. And begins to associate that eventually with being obedient to, to parents. Okay, and um, for a while, of course, there's discipline apart from knowledge to try to to try to direct uh habit patterns and so forth before they come into knowledge. But um, some of the some of the first things the child learns is not on the level of the overall life of the child, but is only in specific areas, like to lie down when mother says to lie down in the bed, and it gains that area of knowledge, and then it starts growing in knowledge. See, when a child comes to, um, or any being comes to understanding, it doesn't come to it um, bam, I and mean, it's got all moral understanding. But see, it grows in, in, in one little area at a time, and begins to develop that way. And so I wonder if a child, when it first starts out with the first areas of responsibility, could be held responsible for an overall pattern of life. You see, that would be too. It would seem to me to be too much responsibility for a kid that only has that much knowledge. Okay. Um, but it could be held responsible for the knowledge that it does have. And then as God uses a convicted conscience, as the child goes against what it knows in those limited areas, um, this to me indicates the justice of God towards children raised in really crummy environments, um, that he could use the convicted conscience to try to guide them to in the right direction before they come to the place where they have to choose to be overall in their life selfish or doing what they know is right. Okay? And I think in some cases like that in Christian homes that some kids have become, have have started serving and loving the Lord before they ever developed an overall intention of selfishness so they never really were lost. That's my personal opinion. Um, Jesus said, Their angels do always behold the face of their Father which is in heaven, of such is the kingdom of of heaven. And Paul the Apostle said, I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. So if he was alive apart from the law once, he can't be talking about physically because he wrote the book of Romans. The commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Right? Obviously, it's not physically because he wrote the book of Romans, right? So he's talking about spiritually. The, uh, I was alive apart from the law once at one time. The commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Or, and you has he made alive who became dead through your trespasses and sins. It says in Ephesians um, chapter two and verse one. It's commonly missed. Uh, yeah, that could have been that could have been an exception. It, my personal opinion is that people die because they're separated from the right to eat of the tree of life. That the human race as a, as a whole lost that. Because God associated living forever physically with eating of the tree of life, and He cut us off from it. I don't know. Well, we can you know, we can only say what if because <laughs> the story doesn't read like that. Um, I mean, that's history now, so we can only say what if. But uh I don't know we may not have. But um, I don't I don't know that necessarily it was because our sin was imputed to him either. Because I don't really agree with the idea of imputation, but that's another idea. But um <laughs> if ay <laughs> ay you're going you to get way out there but um, but if you agree with the, idea of the imputation I don't know that necessarily it was because of the imputation of sin that he died you see it would appear to me that it was because someone killed him that he died you know does that make sense? <laughs> it seems to make sense to me that it was, it was the fact that somebody actually killed him that he died and that's a, that's a question too Maybe he didn't. (laughs) Or anyway, because he said, he said, I'm going to lay down my life. No man will take it from me, but I'm going to lay it down myself. But I don't know if that means yielding himself up to being crucified, or if it means that even in a crucifixion, they wouldn't be taking his life. I don't know. (laughs) Well, it says he gave up the spirit, but then that was was associated with people that uh, were killed, too. If you know what I mean, uh, it wasn't just it, the idea of giving. It just means he expirited. That's the, the Greek word means he expirited. The, the spirit came out of him. That doesn't mean necessarily that it was an active thing that he chose. I am going to go out of my body, um, because the same phrase is used for people that you know that got killed, run through, and you know, whack that kind of stuff. That they gave up the ghost. You know, um, it says that of Herod. It says that he was eaten of worms and he expirited. So, that was from being eaten of worms. I don't think Herod was giving up his spirit. That was true at that point, yes. It's a verb. All have sinned. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men because... All sinned. It doesn't say sin spread. It says death did, and it says why? Because all men sinned. I don't know exactly what that means, <laughs> but it seems to say that because everybody sinned, everybody dies. Maybe if, if in, in mass, as a human race, we had turned back to the Lord, we would have been given right to eat of the tree of life. Who knows? I don't know. That's me. Okay. Um, yes. We were going to go on, weren't we? Okay, um, there are basically five places in the Bible that say sin is this, as far as a statement of sin is. Huh? Oh. Well, I remember the, I remember the phrases. I don't know if I remember the places. I think I can find them. Okay. There is sin is the transgression of the law. First John. I think it's three, isn't it? Maybe it's not. 4? Right. Everyone who practices sin is also practicing lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, or transgression. Um, chapter 3, 1 John, verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, or sin is the transgression of the law. Um in 1 John 5.17, it says, All unrighteousness is sin. Now, we talked about what righteousness was, or justice. And so, all unrighteousness, or all injustice, is sin. And don't ask me about the rest of it. And there is a sin not leading to death, and I don't have any idea what that is at all. 1 John 5.17 I have the slightest idea what that's talking about. Okay, James, chapter four and verse seventeen says, "Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James four seventeen. Every time I quote that verse, it reminds me of my James class in Bible school. So we had to fill out the, the one of the tests. What one, one! Just every every you knew that every time you had a test, we had five tests because there were five chapters. And every time you did a test, you knew that there was going to be a chapter written out, and there was going to be blanks in it, and you had to fill out the word, fill in the words. And that was like you know five, you know it could be four or five words a verse. And they had to be they had to be proper. They had to be plural if they were plural. They had to be singular if they were singular. It couldn't be the other way around, you see? If it was works, it had to be works, plural, not work. Um, and so forth. And the word works and faith are used a lot in um, the book of James. And I did this it says fill it says complete this chapter. It wasn't fill in this time, and I didn't pay attention to the instructions, which I should have done. It says complete this chapter. And so I started filling in the words, got all the way down to the end, realized that I, you know, I'd gotten all the way through all the blanks, and I knew what all the blanks were because you just basically you memorized the book when you took the course because you had to read it so much. Um, and then got down to the end and thought that I was finished, handed my test in, right? But he had only numbered down to sixteen, and le- he left off the number everything, just left it blank after that. And we were supposed to put seventeen and then put in the whole verse. You see. They complete the chapter, and I handed it in. And then I realized later that I hadn't put in the 17th verse. And I don't know how much it, off, it was off for each word that was missing. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> one of the guys in one of the James classes was in the James class was uh, was working in a warehouse, and he took the test that morning and went to the warehouse that afternoon. And he was working on this box, and one of the numbers on the box was 417. And he went, Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and realized that he'd forgotten the 17th verse. <laughs> Can you imagine that. Four standing, the guy standing next to him goes, "Yeah, so what's with 417? 17?" Um, okay, in Romans, in Romans. Romans, 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 yes, Romans, uh, Romans 14. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. The word faith in the Greek is confidence, and it's, it makes much more sense in this, in this uh, context to translate it confidence. He who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from confidence, you see? It's out of doubt rather than confidence. And whatever is not from confidence or whatever is not done in confidence is sin. If you eat and you have, a, you have a guilty conscience over your eating, it's wrong for you to do so. Whatever is in doubt, whatever you can't do with a completely free conscience, is sin for you. Okay, Because you're sinning against yourself. You're doing something that's not good to yourself. Not for your well-being to go against what you feel is right, and so if you do that, then it's wrong for you. Um, yeah, Romans fourteen twenty-three, last verse, and the other statement—that's four, right? And the other statement is in Proverbs. Somebody can help me with it. The devising of wickedness is sin. Where is that? What does it say? The devising of wickedness is sin. In, in the King James, it says the thought of foolishness. Anybody know what that is? Anyway, we can find it. 24, yeah, that sounds right. 24, 9. Where are you, 24? 9. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. There are basically five statements of what Sin is, and you notice that every one of those is a choice. To eat—that's <laughs> not sin in itself. Now, <laughs> to to eat out of con- when you're out of confidence, or to eat in doubt, is sin. To uh, devise wickedness or folly is sin. To transgress the law is sin. To be unrighteous or unjust is sin. And what's the other one? To know to do good and do it not is sin. And uh, Gordon Olson will go through all the words in the Hebrew and the Greek with you for the words for sin. And we'll show you how all of those are choices. There are none of them that describe a state or a thing or a being or anything like that. They're all choices. All the Hebrew and Greek words for sin. And so um, he'll deal with that quite Inclusively, and as a matter of fact, he'll deal with the whole area of man's being born with a sinful nature and so forth, like that. Okay, so then your sin, when you talk about sin, it's either going to be metaphysical or it's going to be moral. It's going to be one or the other, and we need not squash them together, and we shouldn't squash them together. So, um, but I, I want to share just personally with you something that I feel is really important about this doctrine and the effect that it has on people, and that is that people have a tendency to walk around if they believe that they were born with a sinful nature. Even after they become Christians, many people are taught that you you know you have two natures working within you. The Bible says, "Old things are passed away; behold, all things have become new." And I'd like to know if that's true. Is there, are becoming new? Well, I'll look it up in Analytical Lexicon. In Analytical Lexicon, what what tense is the Greek in? Okay, I'll look it up. Let's see what's, I want to see what's happening there. Okay, Paul, still, Paul the apostle still commands us to put off the old man, and so if you have an old man and a new man in you, you are not being obedient, because Paul the apostle said, "Put off the old man with its evil practices." And in Ephesians, the old man is associated with your former manner of life. The old man, your former manner, concerning your former manner of life. Okay, so your old man, new man, is a former manner of life, new manner of life. In what to be putting off? I remember reading, I think, from Gordon that it was supposed to be an it's an erist, which means a completed act. You're supposed to put it off and be done with your old man. Yeah, I think I think that's in the Sharing Your Faith manual. Just just, you're supposed to put it off in the section of sanctification. Well, that's, that's a good question. Oh, to have two natures. Well, see the th- people seem to describe it as if you could have two natures in one person and exactly what they mean by that, I don't know. I, I think what they mean is that you have your sinful nature stemming from Adam and then you have a, a new principle at work in you through having given your life to Christ and that those things are contrary to one another. And of course, there are different views of sanctification. Some views say that you should have your sinful nature eradicated, and you don't have that anymore. Um, But Paul says, "Put off the old man and put on the new man." Um, And so, I guess if we have if we have two of us in here, um, if we have two of us in there, we got problems. Um, Lauren called it a Hegelian synthesis on a moral level, thinking that there were two natures in one human being. Well, you're going to have to look at that in the context of some verse in the Bible, you see, and it's, that's going to depend on context and it's going to depend on a lot of things. The problem is the only place that uses the word nature in reference to the actual word nature in reference to uh, um, the sinful state of man, it says, "You and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, okay, and uh, that's, we can look at that if we want in Ephesians Two, it says, and you were dead in, and the word here in the Greek is dia, which means through or by means of, you were dead by means of your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And it appears as if in that context, being, a, being by nature children of wrath is dependent upon indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay. So in its context, it would appear to me that it's talking about because you sinned, you were by nature children of wrath, even as others. So if it's a developed nature, a character that you have because you worked on it, worked on it anyway trust me he says what we get what we get good at whatever we practice we practice sin we become very good at sinning practice righteousness we should become good at righteousness okay um uh, uh, yeah yeah okay um how much more time we have look at the beginning of the chapter. He's talking about. He says, "While we were in the flesh, when we were in the flesh." In Romans chapter eight, he says, "You were not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be the spirit of God dwells in you." So, for the Christian, they don't fit into those into that category anymore. And at the end of the chapter, he also says, "Who shall deliver me from the from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord." You So we're not supposed to be in that, we're supposed to be delivered from that through Jesus. We're supposed to be living in Romans chapter 8, walking in the Spirit. Okay? So the context of that is in the flesh, when we were in the flesh, it's a convicted sinner rather than a Christian. Now I believe a young Christian, an untaught Christian that hasn't been taught how to have victory over sin, could live in that because they don't know any better. They could live in that state as, and and go through that kind of a struggle, you say. But they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be delivered from that through Jesus. And so, um, they could be living in that, but I think it, it describes more the convicted sinner than anything else. Because to say to say that that's that's going on when Paul the Apostle every place else seems to affirm that the Christian should not be living with sin. Uh it seems sort of strange. They're contrary to him. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to take that. I, I don't know what it would be referring to, um, you know, as far as historically it was concerned. Weak as, it, weak as it was through the flesh, don't know. Unless, uh, I, I, unless he, he may be using the word flesh the way he normally uses the word flesh, and re- referring to uh, selfish habit patterns, but he's referring to the law. Being weak because of the flesh. I don't know. But he said the law couldn't do it anyway; couldn't set us free, and so he did it through his son. And yeah, there are lots of things the law can't do. Okay, uh, let's go on. Let's just. You guys can work on that. I mean, you can do your do your homework. <laughs> you got Monday off. Huh? Okay, let's uh. Talk about some of the governments of governments of man by God. Okay, now talk about the end of God's government for man. You ready? You ready? Ready? Okay. God. Nice subject. Created man. Also a nice subject. Let's not become platonic here. Now, when God created man, he needed to have some way, as we talked about this morning, he'd have some way to be able to govern man. And in his government of man, he was going to have to express certain things that would try to get man to do what he knew was right because it was the right thing to do and because it was for the well-being of God and the universe so when god created man he was, he sensed himself responsible as we saw this morning to have a government of some sort and he has expressed government towards man you shall not steal is an expression of government towards man the expression excuse me the expression of government of course Over man is usually expressed in this way. It's expressed in law. Um, in that when God is, if God is going to govern man, he has to give him laws by which to know this should be done rather than that should be done. Okay? We have law. But a law, without any consequences, is only advice. You've probably heard that before. A law without any consequences is only advice, and so God is also obligated to enforce the law with what we call sanction. We'll make it plural, sanctions. No. Hmm? A sanction is a consequence. We use the word I use the word sanction because the word consequence usually has a negative connotation. You know, I if, I've done this before with groups that said, no, what are some consequences of the traffic laws. And people name things like getting tickets, uh, getting into an accident, um, you know, this kind of stuff. And they don't name things like being able to go out into the country and uh, and enjoy the countryside. Uh, they don't name the positive things of the traffic, the positive consequences of the traffic laws. See? They don't do that. Okay, so I use the word sanction because that can indicate the idea of consequence without its being positive or negative as far as connotation, because most people don't use the word sanction. Okay, sneaky, huh? Okay, now, the end, isn't that cute? The end of this whole thing that God is doing, God and God in relationship to man is governing him with laws and, those, and thus he's expressing sanctions or consequences to the law to help enforce them. In this whole process, the end always points back to God and man. And it points back to a particular thing about God and man. It points back to their well-being. God's whole purpose in, in um, governing and expressing law and enforcing sanctions, that is, consequences to the, to, to the law, both positive and negative, that when he expresses these things, it's always because he's, he has a particular end in mind. And the end that he has in mind is the highest well-being of God and man. Okay? Why does God try to say to you, don't steal? Because it's for your highest well-being and the highest well-being of others around you that you don't steal, you see? And it is not for your highest well-being to steal. And so his his purpose in telling you don't steal and in moving in government and expressing law as a governor and then enforcing sanctions, that you know, there will be a penalty if you do steal, um, his whole purpose in that is to try to urge you to live the way you know you should live. Now it's a very sneaky little thing right here, and that is that if you look very carefully at statements that Jesus makes in the New Testament and that that, uh, God makes in the Old Testament, you will see that God does not use the sanctions of the law as the motives for which you should fulfill the law. He doesn't say um, you should not do this because this will happen. He says, if you do this, this will happen. And there's a difference. If you say to a little child, you should not do this because this will happen to you, okay, then what you're doing is teaching the child that the reason that the child should be good is in order to escape the punishment, using it as a motive. Okay, But if you say, if you do this, this will happen, Then you haven't taught the child a motive, you've only taught the child a consequence. Do you understand that? And so when when Jesus said um, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, he didn't say you should repent in order that you don't perish. He didn't wasn't making it a motive. He was saying, This is what will happen if you don't repent. He was just stating a fact. Get the difference? He wasn't saying, repent so you can um, repent so you can escape hell. He didn't say that. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He who does this, you know, like um, he who says this to his brother will be in danger of hellfire. He didn't say that you should not do it because you want to escape hell. He just said, this is what will happen if you do do it. Do you understand the difference? That's a, a very subtle difference that we need to keep in our minds is that when God says, when he expresses sanctions and says, if you do this, this will happen. If you um, if you do this evil, then this will happen to you, this penalty. If you do this, um, this good thing, then this reward will be given to you. But he, he says, this is what will happen, but he never says you should do it in order to escape the penalty and in order to receive the reward. He doesn't set them up as as, uh, as motives. He just says that there are consequences that will follow. You get that? Okay. Now, in God's expression of sanctions, the whole function for the existence of a sanction is to try to secure the end of the, the end of the law. To try to secure the end, the end that was intended, and that is the highest well-being of God and man. You get it? Some do. Some don't. Okay? <clears throat> God expressed sanction. He took his place as governor. He expressed law, and as and, a and result of that, he got to enforce sanctions or consequences. Right? You have uh, over here for obedience, and over here you have disobedience, and you've got reward and punishment. Okay. Now God expresses law and enforces sanction. And the reason that he in, he has to enforce sanction is in order to try to secure in order to try to secure the end of the government. He never sets up the sanctions however as motives. He simply influences the mind of man with the sanction. It's a very subtle difference, because we, we, I know in my mind anyway, I constantly get these two confused. And I try, I'm trying to keep them, keep them separate. That when God says this will happen to you, He does not mean that you should choose to do it because you want to escape that. You see, or because you want to have it, if it's a positive thing. He's not saying that, but He is trying to influence you with those sanctions. But He's not setting them up as motives. Big difference. You're getting it now. Okay? So if God comes to me and says, If you sin, Michael, the soul of sins, it shall die. If you sin, then I'm afraid you'll have to be separated from me. Now, he's not saying, Michael, give your life to me so that you won't have to be separated from me and setting it up as a motive. But he is influencing my mind by saying, If you do this, this will happen. And it does influence my mind. And the only way that God has to try to bring moral beings into doing the thing that they know they should do is influence. He can't use force. And the only way that he can really do that in influencing us is by submitting information to our minds and saying, here's the information, now you have to make a choice. And so he says, for obedience, reward. For disobedience, punishment. You have now a choice. To make, you see. Now, and he, and he isn't setting those up as the motives. He's just saying that's what'll happen if you go this way, and that's what'll happen if you go that way. And he thus is influencing us towards doing what is right. Okay. <clears throat> I'm glad you're getting it because I, you're getting a lot easier than a lot of other people I've uh, I've taught. Okay. Now. In this sanction then, sanctions do not exist, they do not exist on their own. We, we looked at the, the character of the law, that the law has always existed. It's self-evidence, and it's eternal, it's intuitive, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera. it's always been, it's eternal. But sanctions do not exist on their own. Sanctions are something that God has to enforce, and of course he, he, he meets out the sanction exactly in proportion to what is done, you know, exactly in proportion to the... The kind of crime that is committed, or the kind of, of um, good deed that is done, It's the kind of reward that the person should receive. Okay, but he does that; he sets these up. Now there are some consequences. Now, wait I it's not. Oh, if I want to get into consequences right now, are we about over there? Me reading. Oh really? My my. We've had an increase in time. The <laughs> watch stopped. <laughs> he said, "The eternal now." <laughs> okay. So these things don't exist on their own. Now, there are some natural consequences of sin that will result, natural consequences of sin that will result because we sin. But when we talk about sanction in the enforcement of law, we have to talk about that which God has set up in order to try to curb selfishness in man and to try to get him to do what is right. Now, I guess you could say, actually, that God is used uses natural sanctions too, couldn't you? Because the fact that you, you will receive a guilty conscience is something that automatically happens, and when that happens to you, it begins to urge you to try to do that which is right, whether or not your motives will be right, is another question, but it does urge you to start try to, trying to do what is right. So I guess you could say uses natural sanctions in a sense. But when we speak of the, generally of the sanctions, we talk of them as the ones that God has established in order to support the government. And the end is what? the highest well-being of God and man. That's what God is trying to get at. Okay, now, the reason for punishments we talked about the teleological view of, of, um, of morality and the deontological view of morality. Remember what those are? Yes? Okay? So then the reasons for punishment, the reason that there are negative sanctions, lies in the consequences of sin. In other words, if you sin, you are not bringing about the highest well-being of God and the universe, and because it does that, then there are there is punishment for sin. Because sin is bad. It's bad for you. Okay, um, I'll name some consequences of sin. Consequences of sin. Just go through these briefly. You're already familiar with them, and you'll get them later. Number one, we bring grief. You're familiar with them. Yeah? Some of you, some of us are familiar with them by experience, aren't we? Um, number one is gr- the grief of God. That when we sin, we bring grief to God. Number two, we are separated from other men. We begin to relationships begin to break up between ourselves and someone else. You st- when you steal from someone, uh, you don't really feel comfortable in their home when you've just ripped off their um, their stereo. Yeah. Uh, it has a tendency to separate you from other people. When you lie to someone, uh, you don't like to be around them when you realize that you've lied to them. Okay? You borrow some money from somebody and you said you'd pay it back to them on Tuesday and you it's Wednesday and you're walking down the street and you see them and you go, ha-ha-ha. <laughs> Yes, we had a guy that in our house one time that was very, very, um, you know the word antsy means? Those of you another, know, he was very, uh, very nervous. <laughs> very antsy, yes. While he was in our house because he tried to sneak in through our basement window. And we knew he couldn't come in through the door because we knew it was locked. And when we went down there, it was still locked. So he must have come in through the window and he didn't realize that the dog was in the basement. And the dog started barking. And the day before, you see, we had had the stereo ripped off. When we came home from Bible school, the stereo was gone, and uh, we uh, we had had a bunch of junkies in our home uh, visiting. Visiting, some of the guys had been former junkies, and we thought, well, we know where the stereo went. And uh, this fellow came in, and uh, he came up the stairs. Of course, he, there wasn't a whole lot he could do when the dog started barking, because everybody made a mad dash for the basement, and. Uh, so he came up the stairs looking very nonchalant, and and uh, one of the brothers said, "Isn't it awfully strange of you to, to come into the uh, to our house through the basement window? Uh, don't you don't you think if you were coming to visit us, you should have come in through the front door maybe instead of the basement window?" And he felt very ill at ease. <laughs> and uh, one of the brothers shared with him, "We we realize we understand the situation that you're in, especially the brother that had been a junkie. He says I I know what it's like." It's, um, it was pretty pretty good of you to pull that off. W- where are you going to sell it? And uh, and he eventually came around and said yes, he did have it. And uh, um, oh no, 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 that he didn't have it, but he had taken it. Um, and they'd already gotten rid of it. And the brother said, well, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to press anything against you. I'm not going to press any charges. I'm not going to demand of you that you give it back. Um, and, uh, and then they had a nice long conversation about why he wasn't going to do that. But anyway, he felt very uh, ill at ease. And you can see how when you rip somebody's stereo off, you're not going to feel very comfortable in their home, especially if their dog catches you in the basement. Okay. So, number three. Not only do you, do you feel alienation with other men, but you also feel alienation from yourself or within yourself. There is uh, torment, and there is guilty conscience, and there is uh, problem, and there is... Uh, All kinds of things, confusion, all kinds of things happen inside of you. Alienation from yourself can stem from guilt into all kinds of uh, psychological aberrations, split personality and uh, hearing voices. All kinds of things can happen in alienation from yourself, within yourself, because of sin. Um, Number four, number four, we become alienated from creation. We have become alienated from creation in a, in the broad sense, in the sense that God has has now put a curse on the creation and it is not conducive to us anymore as it used to be. It now works against us in many fashions, and we need that, by the way. We need that. It was mer- merciful that God did that because it keeps us busy, um, keeps us out of sin, keeps us away from selfishness. We won't go into that right now. Number five It's physical death. Physical death. The separation of your spirit from your body. Separation of your spirit from your body. Physical death. And of course, under any of these, you could start enumerating all kinds of things. You look at the consequences of sin. But it's because of the consequences of sin that God has to enforce punishment. Because sin does something. When we when we make the wrong choices, we affect ourselves and God and other people. And because it that, because it works that way, God has felt it necessary and re- his, has to be responsible to enforce sanctions on the law. How wonderful that he has done so, that he enforces sanctions in the law. He's going to reward those that do what is right and he is going to punish those who do what is wrong. Okay, now... There, are, there is temporary punishment and there is eternal punishment. There are different kinds of temporary punishment that God can use, and there's temporary reward and eternal reward. You can enumerate some of those. There can be temporary punishment and eternal punishment. The eternal punishment basically involves this. You will not have the right to enjoy... This is the negative consequence. You will not have the right to enjoy the (coughs) privileges of the government. Eternal. Eternal punishment. You will not have the right to enjoy the privileges of the government. That is, you will be excluded from the privilege of the government. The government, yeah, the government of moral beings. You'll be excluded from the privileges of that, which basically involves um, relationship between God and man, and men and men, and you'll be excluded from that. And the the state that we call that is hell. You don't have the privilege of having the relationship with God. That's the privilege of the government. And then, if you're obedient, you will be included in the privileges of the government. And we commonly call this state heaven. That is, you are allowed to have that relationship with God and with men in unbroken fellowship. Okay, now there's a difference between a natural... Excuse me. Yeah, there's a difference between a sanction and a natural consequence. A sanction is something God enforces. A natural consequence is something that automatically happens because of the kind of being that you are. See? We commonly speak of the sanctions here as something which God is enforcing. Maybe that's maybe that's just my peculiarity. <laughs> could be just my peculiar way of it defining it so that we have a definition, distinction here or something. You might define it a different way, that's okay. But um, Natural consequence. Um, well, well, a natural consequence of lying is that you uh, begin to harden your arteries. As a natural consequence, I couldn't exactly call it a sanction uh, that God would be enforcing um, in that. Yeah, it happens because of what you are as a being. And that's how we can, that's how lie detectors work and so forth. Of course, they're not always infallible, but you do certain things to yourself. Like when you take drugs, um, one of the natural consequences of a guy that's taken drugs for a long time and has been a mainliner and heroin is tracks in his arms. Now, when that person becomes a Christian, God has promised that the punishment will not be meted out to him. He does not necessarily promise that the consequences will go away. You see? Now, sometimes God does that in his mercy, and I believe if he can justly do so, he probably will. But if, you know, like if a, if a woman um, has commits fornication and a child is born because of that, and when the woman becomes a Christian, she can receive release from the punishment of the sin that she was involved in, but God's not going to make the consequences go away. God now has another moral being that he has to deal with in the world and god has to be fair to that moral being and he just can't go and eliminate the kid god can't do that justly and so god promises to free us from the penalty from the uh the penalty the punishment that we deserve but he does not promise that we will be released from the consequences and when we're talking with people about this we have to remember to keep these things straight and not encourage people to think that when they become christians that the consequences Will all be taken care of. We can say to them with full assurance that the punishment will not be meted out to you that you deserve to have, but we can't tell them that the consequences will automatically go away. God doesn't promise that. Okay, now one more thing I want to point out. We didn't really get to um, <laughs> the last part here, but that's okay. One more thing I want to point out. I've already said it, but I want to point it out, and that is a sanction is an influence directed towards the moral being's mind to try to obtain the end of the government. A sanction is an influence directed towards the moral being's mind to try to obtain the end of the government. The end of the government is what? The highest well-being of God in the universe. Okay, I'm going to repeat that a few times. <laughs> and it has to be directed towards the mind of the moral being as an influence because God has no other way of securing the end of the government except by influence when He's dealing with moral beings. He can't use force to obtain the end of the government. So, you can think these things through. Tonight we'll stop.